So a few weeks ago, my family and I were camping in Virginia, State Park, lovely place. And this state park had preserved a homestead of a family that had once occupied that land. And as we were driving around that part of the park, there was a, a rock wall beneath a shade tree that caught my eye. So pulled over the car, stepped out of the vehicle, walked over, and sure enough, as you might guess, it's a cemetery. It's a, it's a family cemetery. And so we stepped carefully inside that rock wall and did our best to make out the very old headstones. And the best we could do was, uh, the oldest one we could find was somewhere between the mid 1800s or so. And the most recent gravestone there was somewhere around World War II. And as we were walking back to the vehicle, I, I had this thought that times have changed have they not, for all sorts of reasons. But I, I mean, in this way, if I were to ask many of you, where are the closest relatives you have buried? Depending on how old you are, it's, it's more often than not, you wouldn't say in one place, you would probably say a variety of places. And therefore, what I saw there in that rock-lined family cemetery is not only an ancient practice, but one that is in large part past, almost entirely. Because now you are born, you grow, you learn, and a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times you migrate, you move, such that at the end of your life, where you're buried is not with those with whom you share a name and a history, but usually where you've cultivated a history. It's just the way culture has changed. It's the way things are. You still share to borrow words, solidarity, you still, still share a, an affinity, an affection, a loyalty, and a love for those with whom you share a name. But that, that solidarity has changed. And not just in ways related to where we find ourselves buried. Independence, the thing that we're thinking about this weekend is baked into the way we think. And that idea trickles down into all sorts of attitudes and choices that we make, including where we choose to be buried. For a few weeks now, we've been listening to Peter, who wrote a letter, who wrote a letter to a bunch of churches under great duress, who were being thought of as strange, strange for what they believed. And each week, we're, we're looking at one portion of his letter and, and surfacing one idea that we think represents what it is to be strange to believe in Jesus. We're not doing so to, to minimize the strangeness. We're also not doing so to glorify ourselves in that strangeness. We're out to try to embrace it, to understand what it means, and not to be afraid of it. This week, we're going to argue that Peter is telling us that one strange thing about believing in Jesus is a strange solidarity that we feel with one another. A solidarity that is strong and abiding and is as unfamiliar and uncommon as we might imagine. It's a solidarity that can often be sacrificed on the altar of our appreciation for independence in ways we may not even be aware of. And so we're going to consider what it means to have that solidarity in three ways. A solidarity of identity, a solidarity of purpose, and a solidarity of honor. Identity, purpose, honor. That's what he's got for us today. So let's dive in. Our central text is 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Sarah Isabella Burden is a name you've heard me mention on a number of occasions. She just wrote a book. It's called Strange Rights, and it's her attempt to understand where is the impulse that drives a lot of those who are no longer identifying with, with uh, traditional religious traditions. And her argument it is that they are not abandoning the religious impulse. They're only doing what uh, those who work with digital music do. Uh, if you work in digital music, you will take a bunch of uh, pieces and you'll throw it into a hopper and you'll mix it around and mash it up and, and then piece it together in a whole new way. And that's called a remix. And therefore, her, her thesis is people aren't abandoning religious ideas. They're just remixing them according to their preferences, according to what they think includes and uh, demonstrates the, the nature of reality. And, and one way in which she documents that impulse is that uh, a survey was taken uh, among those who were born after 1995. And uh, those that fall in that category, 75% uh, of them uh, agreed with this statement. Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. In other words, they're not giving up on trying to find meaning and purpose but they're just using alternative ways in which to find it, in ways in which to establish it. And, and the one example of how they're doing it is there's a, a startup company called um, the Ritual Design Lab, where it has a hotline, you call it up, you tell them your background, you tell them about your needs, and they pop all that into their database and they outspits this whole set of rituals that you can follow to uh, kind of ground you and center you and give you some guidance for how you do your life. It has nothing to do with gods or spirits or anything like that. It's just how do you, what things should you practice in order to center yourself? And the owner of that company put it in this way, why he does what he does, why he started what he started. He said this, the new generation wants bite-sized spirituality instead of a whole menu of courses. Design thinking can offer this because the whole premise of design is human-centeredness. It can help people shape their spirituality based on their needs. Institutionalized religions somehow forget that at the center of any religion should be the person. That's where we are. That's the moment we find ourselves in. That's the, the bed we've made. It's the house we've built. And it explains the idea that anything that is beyond us will only be admitted into our frame by our own invitation. That's the, the current nature of the religious impulse. And it, it explains a lot. It explains a bunch of attitudes. It also explains how people come to understand their own identity. An identity that is in large part grounded 
on the appreciation for independence. And should we go so far as to say that that is not unique to that one demographic, that it might be more familiar to us, that we might be more reflective of that idea than we'd like to admit? The only thing stranger in Christianity than believing that there was a God who became man and that man was risen from the dead is to believe that your identity is as much who you belong to as who you are. That might be just as strange as believing that the one you serve is the one who was risen from the dead. In Christianity, you are highly prized, but you are not at the center of yourself. And that is certainly one way in which you are strange. And that's where Peter is going here in the first part of his passage. The first thing he wants to tell us is that we have a solidarity. And it's a solidarity of identity. And he spends the most time on that. It's the most prominent feature of the passage. So we're going to spend the most time of this sermon on this point. The context that he's already shared with us, the part that we talked about last week, is that to be part of the people who believe in Jesus, that at the center of your existence has to be one thing. It has to be love. Not heroics, not intellect, not power, not commiseration, but love. Love is at the center. Where love ceases to be at the center, where love does not abide, even in your pursuit of justice, where love does not abide, you cease to be who you are. Here in our passage, Peter is out to share with us that when it comes to our identity, you and I have to recognize that that identity is more communal than it is even personal. That our solidarity of identity has more to do with who we belong to, who we're in league with, than even how we understand ourselves. In fact, you don't get you until you understand what part you're a part of, what whole you're a part of. And the way he gets at that is to unpack for us, first of all, who is the one who calls us into this solidarity of identity. And naturally, he's going to speak of Jesus. And he says there in Jesus, in verse 5, that Jesus is a living stone, chosen and precious in the sight of God. Now, why does he pick that metaphor of a living stone? For one, it has a rather ancient and rich tradition to it. You hear him speak of, from Isaiah, um, of, one, uh, of one God laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Peter is marshalling Isaiah's words there to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Isaiah could scarcely fathom. That he is the one who would be a cornerstone for something greater than himself. He is that living stone. He's the fulfillment. But to call him a stone... A living stone is to imply that he has a purpose. Because what stone, if put to a particular purpose, what can it do? Peter's argument is that Jesus, as a living stone, has come to gather others and to form something. He's come to form something. And so in verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house. Their identity is as much what larger whole they form as how they even understand themselves as selves. And you can't miss that. And if you put it to the margins, you miss something fundamental even about your own self. And the way Peter 
underscores that is by at the end of the passage he starts rattling off all these other ways of desi- designating who we are it's almost like a, a cascade of fireworks he he speaks as us, of us as a, a chosen race a, a royal priesthood a holy nation a, a people for his own possession and and we're going to unpack each of those in more detail next week but for now we're just going to camp out on this idea of a living stone that he is the living stone chosen and precious and he has called us to become living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house. To think of ourselves in that way is to think of ourselves with a different kind of significance. You see a stone on the ground, it is a still remarkable consequence of sedimentation and crystallization and petrification, all those Asians. But when you take that stone and you put it in a wall or you put it into a cathedral, it takes on a different kind of significance by virtue of what it is now arranged in, for what purpose it now serves. That's its new identity. And that thinking about our identity really has some important implications for how we think of ourselves in in two senses. One, that's kind of a a top shelf highway of thinking about it, and and two, in a very practical way. In this high sense, To think of our identity in that way, this solidarity of identity, is to really cut across the grain of two very modern ways of thinking about identity. And two very modern ways of thinking about identity could be be summarized by the, by the, the philosophies of individualism and group identitarianism. Say that 10 times fast. When it comes to individualism, it, it has the individual at the center of things, and therefore your identity is really derived mainly and mostly from what is unique to you. Your, your highest value is what is only you, and, and the highest virtue within individualism is self-determination. You do what you do. You do you. That's individualism in a nutshell. Group identitarianism is putting at the forefront of the way you think about your identity as the group that you come from, the, the background you originate from, the, the heritage that you have, the attributes that you share, the struggles that you face, the, the aspirations that you have as a group. That's group identitarianism. And, and that can become a primary source of identity, identity. To think of yourself as a living stone who has been being built up into a spiritual house, it, it comes against both of those ideas in a particular way. It doesn't erase your individuality. It doesn't erase what is unique to you. It doesn't erase what you and you alone hold. It only puts that which is true of you in submission to that which is greater than you. It doesn't keep you at the center. It puts God at the center. And Lord knows your individual worth is established. It's what we mean by what we say you're made in the image of God. That's not in question and that's not put to the margins in believing that, that our identity is more of a community than it is even of a personal thing. It's only saying that that identity is in service to what he does on our behalf. When it comes to the group identitarianism idea, again, To be a living stone is not to erase your background. It is not to erase what is uh, true of your heritage. It is not uh, not out to erase the struggles that you face or the attributes that you share. But it is also saying unto you that what you have is in service to something greater than yourself. And that what really unites your identity, what really um, composes it, is that you have a shared hope that is based on a belief that God has responded to you who all share a a certain plight. You have a shared affliction. And so in that 
in that high sounding sense, in that broad sense, it has a great set of implications for how you think about identity. But it also, it also speaks to our, our very big practical matter. It's practical because if you'll just think about the nature of stones right now, look, stones in this wall, stones in this cross, stones in that rock line wall around that cemetery. If you, if you depending on which stone you pull out of the mix, uh, that thing no longer either serves its purpose or it will crumble to the ground or it will not be able to withstand that which it is meant to withstand. To think of yourself as a living stone being built up into a spiritual house is to believe that you've been incorporated into something and you are interdependently arranged with one another who is also a living stone. It's what it means to be a living stone and therefore to, to give up on being incorporated into that world, to, to avoid it altogether or, or to deny that you both have a need that others can help with or that you are needed in order to be of assistance to others. To deny either of those is to deny something fundamental about your identity. And it is to deprive both you and of the greater whole you're a part of from entering into the fullness for which it was intended. Now, that all sounds really high sounding even. So let me put it in terms that I think will go um, make more sense. So Brett McCracken, he wrote a book called Uncomfortable. And in that book, he quotes a guy named Sam Alberry who says this, It is impossible to be in Christ and not belong to others. A Christian, by definition, has a connection with and a responsibility to other Christians. You cannot claim Christ and avoid his people. It's the nature of your identity. It's the nature of your identity that's in, in solidarity with others who share that same identity. And therefore, the more you enter into that, the more you come to embrace it. And look, when you embrace that identity, that solidarity of identity, what it's saying is that you are being invited into the mess of sinful community. And um, newsflash, you qualify, and so do I. You're a mess, and you're sinful, just like I am. But somehow, by entering into the mess of sinful community, we are in this together. And the more we embrace it, the more likely that God can be there with us in it and somehow do something beautiful by it and through it. That is our solidarity of identity. But what's our purpose? We don't have an identity for the sake of an identity. We have a solidarity also of purpose. And as much as it was strange to perhaps hear that our identity has as much a communal dimension as a personal dimension, what is also strange to believe is that that purpose is as much public as it is a private pursuit. That it is an out there in the world kind of thing as much as it is in our prayer closet, in ourselves, and even among our, one another. And the way Peter makes that point is by marshalling two phrases that speak to that public character. The first one is what he says there about why we become a living stones being built up as a spiritual house. What for? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why is he using the idea of a holy priesthood? Why, why borrow that? And the Old Testament priesthood would do two things, among others. It would be there to represent God to the people and people to God. It would be there to, to offer sacrifices on behalf of those people. So, again, to, to resurface an earlier question, why, why speak of us as a priesthood 
when there is no physical temple and when there's no more need for any kind of sacrifices because Jesus is that one-time sacrifice for all. Why call us that? In part, because to be a holy priesthood is nothing more than being in part an answer to the very prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that will that he wants us to pray for that would be done? What is that will that is true of heaven that he wishes to be done on earth? He wants God's name to be hallowed. He wants needs to be met. He wants forgiveness to be the reigning virtue of reality. He wants us to avoid sin. He wants evil to be squelched. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray, so that we pursue, it's the nature of our priesthood. The priesthood then would mediate God's presence unto the people. Now we are a people that mediate God's presence to a world. We're not a physical thing, we're a personal thing. The priesthood has a purpose. And the largest part of that purpose is what Peter talks about there in verse 9. Why are we a people after God's own possession? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been given a word. We've been given a message. We've been given news. And just like kids who have a very hard time in keeping a secret about something that is wonderful news for everybody. So the intended effect of one who has come to understand Jesus and what he has done on our behalf is to wish to share that where we can with those who might be interested in hearing. To do so with humility and with gentleness and with respect and more on that in a coming sermon, but to proclaim it. And that's a public matter. This, this, this priesthood, this, this proclaiming, it is a, it's a public thing. There's no way around it. To, to be one who is part of his spiritual house is not simply to to hear that Jesus is our high priest who has acted on our behalf, but actually to be a priesthood. It, it is not simply to hear proclamation of God's mighty works done to us in Christ, but to be a source of that proclamation in some way through, through word and through deed, to bring that truth to bear in and through our lives and sometimes through our lips. Now that truth, especially in our day, probably has to be seen in us before it will ever be heard from us. But it is still a public matter with gentleness and respect. That's the nature of our calling. That's the nature of our purpose. But let us be honest with ourselves. That public solidarity, that public work of being a priesthood and being a proclamation, um, it's hard. It's hard because in as much as it's called to be public, um, most of the world would just prefer that we keep it to ourselves, that we make it private and private alone. And that's why we need this third dimension of solidarity, this, this third thing that we're to understand ourselves by. And I'll put it in these terms. If you will think about all the communities that you're a part of, for the most part, all of those communities, you will enter into them either because you were born into them or you moved into them or you jumped through a, hoops, a bunch of hoops to earn your way into them. That's how you became included in those communities. Peter is out to tell us 
that our inclusion in this community comes to us in a very strange way. Our inclusion in this community came by way of a rejection. Not our rejection, the rejection that came to Jesus. It says in the first part of the verse, he was rejected by men. He was considered a stumbling stone. He was a rock of offense and yet the cornerstone. And it is by his rejection that everybody felt like he was not fit to be anyone we would listen to. He was rejected because no one had a category for God becoming man. He was rejected because nobody had a category for one who would enter into weakness, even the weakness of sinful flesh, yet not being sinful in himself. No one had a category for this God who became man to enter into even the power of death. And maybe near the top of the list about why people might reject Jesus today is that no one had a category for thinking that their only way to be reconciled with the universe would have to be done by something other than ourselves, but by someone who acted on our behalf. For all of those reasons, he would be rejected and was rejected. And yet it is by his rejection that we come to be included. That is his news to us. That is his story for us. That is what he is out to proclaim and embody. That is the gospel. But beloved and anyone else that might be listening, that inclusion is also the source of our deepest honor. The solidarity of honor that we need comes to us through the rejection that he endured. And that honor is to believe that he has covered your shame. And then only by what he has done can you walk with a deepest sense of inner regard. Now that, that sounds beautiful, and yet what does it really mean? Of all places that I might want to illustrate that point, you remember that film back in the 1980s called The Money Pit? Tom Hanks, Shelley Long, they, they see this wonderful fixer-upper house, they think it has great potential, they, they sink a little money into it, and then the contractors come in and they sink more money into it, and then more contractors come in and they sink more money into it, and it begins to be this one hilarious slapstick experience about how much they're putting into it. See, money pit, right? But in time, it begins to wear on them in such a way that it's almost out to threaten the fabric of their marriage. And here in this scene, the work is finally completed, and the house is finally put together, but the husband and wife are so at odds with each other that they're ready to give up on it and sell it. And here in this moment, the, the head contractor kind of puts everything in perspective for them. Well, folks, I guess this is hasta so longer. <laughs> you know, just between us, there were a couple of times when I didn't think we'd ever be able to put this baby back up. <laughs> but it, uh, it turned out... It's beautiful, Curly. It is, really, much better than I imagined. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's very nice of you. Uh, one more job, though. Here's your key. It's the only one I've got it, the president who wants it. Hmm? Well... I just put another banister here. And I'm not trouble selling this place, that's for sure. 
Shirt Brothers will give you a million for it tomorrow. <laughs> Great. No, no, this wasn't an easy one. But the foundation was good, I'll say that. And if that's okay, then everything else can be fixed. What is this honor that comes to those who believe in him? It is a foundation. It is a foundation upon which everything rests, even when everything above it is falling apart, is becoming decrepit, or is being threatened, that foundation remains, and upon that foundation you may rest. And brothers and sisters and, and anyone else that might be listening, if you try to cover your shame by your own efforts, or if you try to establish your honor by anything in this world, then to borrow a phrase, you will never be satisfied. But this honor that comes to us in Him by way of His rejection will not disappoint because it holds us in ways that we can barely imagine and for reasons we could also barely imagine. If you believe, if you believe that your shame is covered by His rejection, if you believe that your honor that cannot be taken from you comes to you and is established for you by his rejection, then at least one thing is true, and it's this. Contempt for one another has no place in this house. There's no logic to it, and there's no basis for it. But when it comes to what we've been talking about foremost in this passage, if you believe that by his rejection is your inclusion, by his rejection is your honor, then look, if you begin to believe that your identity is, is not as much about what's unique about you or what group you're a part of, but about what hope and what name that you have a shared claim to in Jesus, if you start to believe that, you're going to be thought of as strange. And if you start to believe that your solidarity of purpose has a a real public dimension to it that most of the world would just prefer you keep private. You're going to be thought of as strange. And when you feel strange, you will be tempted with feeling rejected. And when you feel rejected in that moment, you will ask yourself this, where does my deepest honor come from? Upon what does my foundation rest? And in that moment, you will have to ask yourself this, if Jesus is true, and His gospel is real, and there is life for us that is abundant now, and there is life without end, and that through Him we might work good in this world to walk humbly and to act mercifully and to do justly, if we are those that have a message to share of forgiveness and reconciliation and hope, if all of that is true, then His honor is worth the risk of your rejection. Friends, by his rejection came your honor. And in these days to come, in these weeks to come, in months to come, where we hope to unfold new possibilities for engaging one another and being for one another and being with one another, should the Lord allow it, and, and being with one another for the purpose of things grander than ourselves, I hope that you will remember these days of deprivation. I hope you will remember these days of lament. I hope you will remember these days of longing. Because it is by this solidarity of identity and purpose and honor that it may just be the case 
that the character of our common community will be such that we might even be tempted to want to be buried with one another. As strange as that sounds, it's true. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge fully that there is something perhaps off-putting or unsettling or frightening or inconvenient about living for one another's good and have seen ourselves only in the light of something greater than ourselves, this spiritual house that you're building us up into. Would you show us how it could be done? Most of all, would you show us why it's beautiful? And then would you help us to see a way forward into that unity, that solidarity, that common love and allegiance that reminds us why you died, not just to reconcile us to yourself, but to reconcile the us of us to yourself. We ask it in the name who has blessed us by his rejection. In Jesus' name, amen.